Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Church, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We're actually in part two of a new sermon series called Victorious. But today we're in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Let me ask you a question while you're turning there. Where do people turn these days when they need help? Now, oddly enough, and and I don't know if this is a spurious source of of help or not, but a lot of people, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to go to Google. (laughs) They're going to search the Internet. What does the Internet say? Uh, Sometimes you get good information, sometimes not so much. A lot of people will turn to their friends for wise counsel, for advice on things. Uh, Some people might actually turn to their favorite uh, uh, TV talk show guy, like, you know, Dr. Phil. I just love Dr. Phil's his Phil-isms. You know. How's that working out for you? Uh, now, if you're from my era, back in the day, people used to write into newspaper advice columns like uh, Dear Abby and Ann Landers, who, by the way, you probably knew this, they were actually sisters in, in real life, but a lot of people will go to a professional counselor. Some might go and talk to their pastor. If it's a legal problem, they're going to go see an attorney. Uh, If it's something they think the government can help with, they're going to talk to their congressman. So we go to a lot of different places where when we're seeking help and hope. But in today's passage, we're going to examine the account of a man who sought out the only source of true hope that he could find. Now, the context, uh, we're in chapter 8, but the context, uh, we're we're actually coming off the heels of Jesus, uh, his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But then we get to chapter 8, and chapter 8 records a series of miracles. Uh, The first concerns the healing of a leper with with a simple touch. You see that in verses 1 through 4. In verses 14 through 15, Matthew records the story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, again, with only a touch. But then sandwiched in between these two accounts is Matthew's uh, recording of Jesus healing of a servant from a distance with just a simple word. Because of the faith of a Gentile centurion. Now, much of today's passage focuses on the, the, the matter of authority. It's kind of funny that when we're kids, we make a list of things that we'll never do when we get big. Oh, when, when I'm a parent, I'm never going to tell my kids because I said so. And now what happens though? We grow up, we have kids, you know, we've got that one kid who's, who's a philosopher at the age of three. Why? Why, Daddy? Why? Why? And what's the response? Because I said so. Well, that cycle might be a little bit embarrassing to us, but it does highlight a pretty foundational truth of life. That some people do have the authority to make things happen just by saying so. Parents are a good example. God's the best example. God spoke, creation happened. 
Jesus spoke and Lazarus was raised from the dead. In this passage, Jesus spoke and a person was healed without Jesus even being present. So we're going to look a little bit deeper at this event, the story of the faith of a centurion that was so great that he believed his sick servant would be healed simply because Jesus said so. And you know what, folks? That's really the key to faith, to true faith, believing that Jesus can and will do what he says he will do. And when he does, that gives us victorious hope. In fact, the big idea behind the passage today is very simple. It's that when we come to Jesus in faith, we find hope. So three things I want you to notice about the Savior, about our Lord in today's passage. We're going to start in verse 5 where we see, first of all, that Jesus holds great healing. Look at verse 5 with me. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. He said to him, am I to come and heal him? Just a quick grammatical note that that last uh, phrase there can actually be also be translated as, I will come and heal him. But note who approached Jesus with this need and why his doing so would have been so unexpected. This was a centurion, a commander in the Roman army. Uh, he was over approximately 100 men. This was a Gentile, you know, meaning a, a non-Jew. And the Romans were an occupying force in Israel. And both Gentiles and foreign soldiers were not especially liked in Israel. But note the kind of need that the centurion had. It says, my servant is sick. He lies home paralyzed. He's in terrible suffering. Now, why is this such a curious request from this Roman soldier? Think about this. This was an unusual display of compassion. He pleaded, the scripture says. Most officials wouldn't have shown such concern for a mere servant. I mean, to them, servants were, were property. You know, you don't worry too much if a piece of your property suffers. I mean, it's, it's kind of like your car. You know, if your car suffers too greatly, well, you're going to put it out of its misery. You're going to junk it or try to at least get some trade-in value for it. Well, the centurion's attitude was really the exception to how most people treated slaves. But I think the Greek text here actually reveals a much deeper motivation. Instead of the more common word for servant, doulos, Matthew chooses to use the word pais. Now, pais is a word that's often used uh, to describe a young boy, a child. It could refer to a favorite servant or even a son. Whatever the case, Jesus holds out this, this offer of healing. I mean, know what he promised the centurion. I'll come to your place. I'll fix him right up. Now, this probably came as a great surprise to the centurion and to others because, you know, Jesus had been ministering not exclusively, but primarily to only his fellow Jews. And in general, the Jews were not supposed to associate with Gentiles. I mean, for sure, they were not supposed to go into their homes. I mean, that was a cultural uh, no-no. 
And according to Old Testament law, too close an association with the Gentile would cause a Jew to become ceremonially unclean. So, you know, that's all interesting, I suppose, but how should Jesus' ready willingness to help this Roman centurion and to minister to his servant, how should that encourage us today? It tells us a few things. Now, it tells us that Jesus ministers to even the people we might not think deserve it. it tells me that I can ask Jesus for help even, even if I'm not walking in right fellowship with him, if I'm not especially close to him. And that's illustrated by the, the centurion, this, this Gentile. It tells me that Jesus wants to come to me and to help. It tells us that Jesus wants to minister to our needs. And that ought to bring us tremendous hope, church. Yet some believers today, they're hindered for some reason from turning to Jesus to deal with their problems. But why is that? I mean, why is it so difficult to just turn that problem over to Jesus instead of looking for some other source or solution? Well, for some of us, like this centurion, maybe we feel like we're unclean. In other words, we feel like we're undeserving to be able to approach Jesus. Or some of us, maybe we're just too timid to do the asking. Maybe we're impatient. And we don't like to wait on God's timing. Sometimes the Lord seems less tangible, maybe, than, than a doctor, you know, or a physical person that we can actually, you know, talk to face to face. Or maybe we're not convinced that, that God understands us. He doesn't get me. Or maybe God doesn't have the power to intervene. It's a very short-sighted way to view God, but... Sometimes we just, we, we think, well, I, I've got to handle this on my own, okay? Uh, or some see, see it as a sign of weakness if I ask for help. We don't, we don't want people to think, you know, that maybe we're, we don't have it all together. Or maybe we just don't want to owe someone. We don't want to be in their debt for their help. And yet, here's Jesus. He's holding out a hand of hope and healing to this centurion, both in the then and there, and to you and I in the here and now. There's a second observation I want you to make note of with regard to our Lord. Yes, Jesus holds our healing. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. Jesus holds great authority. Look at verse 8. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, obviously, this passage in Matthew chapter 8 tells us a lot about our Savior and Lord. But it also tells us a few things about this centurion, too. For example, it tells us that the centurion believed that he was unworthy. I mean, this, this Roman displays a remarkable sensitivity to Jewish traditions by considering himself unworthy to receive this Jewish teacher into his Gentile home. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under, under my roof. 
And again, entering the home of a Gentile would have rendered a Jew unceremonially clean. And so by saying this, the centurion was actually uttering a, a statement of humility. So the centurion believed that he was unworthy. The centurion definitely believed that Jesus could heal. Not only heal, but heal without even being present. Jesus, you don't actually have to come to my house. You can certainly do this from a distance. Now that's a pretty significant thing there because back in Jesus' day, the Jews in his day considered healing from a distance not only rare, but something extremely difficult, something that only a, a holy man could do. But you see, this centurion considered distance child's play. It's a small matter for Jesus' power. Now, up to this point in Jesus, uh, rather in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, uh, Jesus hadn't healed anyone from a distance. The centurion's words were definitely a recognition of, of Christ's miraculous power. And then the centurion also believed that he was unworthy, and yet he believed Jesus could heal. Here's another thing I want you to notice about the centurion's belief. He believed in Jesus' authority. He believed in Jesus' authority. I understand all about authority. Just say the word and it'll happen. That's an acknowledgement of Christ's authority. Now, what's the first clue in this text that the centurion recognizes Christ's great authority? Well, the centurion calls Jesus Lord. That's from the Greek word kurios. Uh, in its most basic form, that word means uh, master, owner, uh, the one who's in control. And really, it's a form of uh, respectful address. But in this context, it actually means a whole lot more. You see, that title can also refer to, how shall we say, transcendent beings. In other words, kurios can be used as a designation for God. Now, if you read the parallel account of this event in Luke chapter 3, we find that the centurion had already heard about the miraculous things that Jesus had done for others. So it seems to me it's pretty clear that Matthew intended for his readers to associate the centurion's address of Jesus with the, the much stronger meaning of Lord, pointing to Jesus' deity. He was, in fact, acknowledging Jesus as Lord, Master, God. In essence, he's saying, Jesus, okay, I'm one who understands earthly authority, but I know who you are. So now I submit to you. So the centurion's response shows us, interestingly, a, a connection here between authority and faith. Now, what's interesting about the centurion's faith is that for him to comprehend the power of faith, he first had to have an understanding of the principles of authority. Now, in this case, the authority of the Son of God, which manifested itself in, in power, in, in action, in operation, in the, the manifestation of the miraculous. So, for the centurion's faith to be made sight... It had to be faith in a greater authority. In fact, the 
authority. You see, Christian, your faith is only as strong as the object in which you place it. Uh, for it to be true biblical faith, it must be faith in Christ alone, the one who brings life, the one who has authority over death. As we studied last week in Revelation chapter 1, the one who has authority over death and Hades, the Bible says. Now, that sounds great, right? But if Christ, God the Son, has such great authority, what keeps people from having the faith that Christ can meet our needs, that Christ can give us strength to handle our problems? Could it be ignorance? I mean, some people just... They think God's too small, or their problem's too small for God, rather. Or for some, it might be a lack of faith. My problem is too big for God. Could be pride. Hey, I got this. Okay, I can take care of this myself. Or skepticism. Is there a God? How can he really know about me and help me? You know, an unwillingness to, to really believe in someone that's supernatural, Maybe it's a lack of understanding of who God really is, of his, his character, his, his love, his, his attributes, you know, his, his omnipotence, his, him, you know, being all-powerful, being all-knowing, his, his love, his wisdom, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy. So then, church, how can we become more convinced of the authority and lordship of Jesus as we turn to him during our own crises? Well, I think it starts with having constant input of these truths about Jesus into our, our hearts and our minds. In other words, we have got to be reading and applying the Word of God, and we need to be doing it on a consistent basis, implanting the Word of God here so that it flows down here and filters out into our lives. I think we also need to be learning to trust God on a daily basis. And I get it, that's not easy. Sometimes we just don't feel like trusting God. That's where we have to make the conscious choice to say, God, even though I don't feel it, I am making the decision today to trust you. I don't understand my situation. I don't know how this need is going to be met, but I choose to trust you. And to make that decision every day. Sometimes it's just making a practice of seeing things with your spiritual eyes, being more attuned to what God is up to in your life, recognizing Him at work, crediting Him for the solutions to your problems. All the more reason for you to keep, a, as I've said before, a, a journal or a, call it a blessings log to record all the things that you see God doing in your life. So in this encounter with the Roman centurion, we've discovered, number one, Jesus holds great healing. Number two, Jesus holds great authority. But here's the third thing about our Lord that I want you to notice in our text. Jesus holds great hope. Look at verse 10. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. See a couple of interesting things in these verses. First of all, I, I, I want you to note Jesus' response. Note the effect the centurion's words have on Jesus. I want you to see the amazement of Jesus. He marveled at this, declared his astonishment that this Roman centurion that believed that Jesus not only had the power to, to heal, had authority over sickness, but had the power to heal from a distance. Now think about, think about that. Think about what it takes to actually surprise and amaze the Son of God. Jesus declared that not only did this man have great faith, he stated that this Gentile centurion had more faith than anyone in Israel. Interesting. Now let's shift gears for a sec. Put yourself in the shoes of the apostles. What kind of thoughts do you think the apostles were having as all this stuff was going on? You know, the centurion noting Jesus' authority. Then Jesus declaring his astonishment at this centurion. It may be at first puzzlement, confusion. Maybe they were astonished at Jesus' astonishment. But slowly a realization of what the centurion was actually saying and an increasing awareness of just what kind of power and authority their master really had. So we see the amazement of Jesus, but you know this story also demonstrates a, a, a much bigger reality that was at play here, and that's the acceptance of the Gentiles. See, the greatness of the centurion's faith, it didn't rest just in the mere fact that he believed Jesus could heal from a distance, but in the degree to which he actually penetrated the secret of Jesus' full authority on earth. I mean, that sort of faith, was, that was all the more surprising since this centurion was a Gentile and he lacked the heritage of Old Testament revelation to help him understand who the Christ was, the Messiah. And yet this Gentile, this Roman centurion, penetrated more deeply into the nature of Jesus' person and authority than any Jew of his time. So there's a bigger picture to see here. What's happening with this centurion underlines the movement of the gospel from the Jews to all other people, regardless of race. It's a, a movement that was prophesied in the Old Testament, one that was developed in Jesus' ministry, one that was expanded in Acts, and one that is charged to us, the church, today. So that's kind of what's, what's up with verses 11 and 12 there. The picture here that, uh, of this banquet in verse 11 is that of a, a messianic Banquet. The imagery is actually taken from the Old Testament in passages like Isaiah chapter 25. But that phrase, east and west, 
is actually meant to point to the, the breadth of peoples who, who come from the ends of the earth. Jesus insists here, contrary to the opinion of most of the Jewish folks, that many Gentiles are going to come from the four points of the compass and join the patriarchs at this great messianic banquet. In fact, the sons of the kingdom, he's talking about in verse 12, are the Jews, the ones who saw themselves as the sons of Abraham, the, one, the ones who thought that they belonged to the kingdom of God simply by heritage and not by faith in Jesus. But see, Jesus reverses the roles here. And the sons of the kingdom, we see, are actually being thrown aside. They're left out of the great future messianic banquet. And they're consigned to darkness where there's tears and, and gnashing of teeth. In fact, that term outer darkness, it signifies eternal separation from God. And weeping refers to mourning that takes place over our separation from Him and our exclusion from His kingdom. And gnashing of teeth actually ref reflects the, the great anguish, the utter despair. I mean, all of the elements that are common to the biblical descriptions of hell are present here. So these verses affirm in, in a way that would absolutely shock Jesus' hearers that the body of the people of God would not always be restricted to the Jewish race that the gospel is for everyone. And Jesus' words here certainly open the door to his great commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 to go into all the world and to make disciples. But then I want you to notice something else. After the acceptance of the Gentiles, we finally, we see the allowance of the centurion's request. Verse 13 there, Jesus turns his attention back to the centurion, tells him to go home. His request was granted that very moment, the Scripture says. The instantaneous nature of Jesus' act served as, a, as a, really a final exclamation point on Jesus' supernatural authority. Now, I, I think it's fun to kind of speculate about who this centurion might have actually been. You see, there was a centurion who was present at Jesus' crucifixion and identified Jesus as the Son of God. You see that in the Gospel accounts in Mark 15 and Matthew 27. And the centurion that also declared that Jesus was innocent. That's in Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 23. Now, you know, whether or not that centurion is the same one in today's passage, hey, we're, we're never going to know this side of heaven. What we do know is that this centurion displayed great faith in Jesus, faith greater than all of Israel. So, so to, to kind of recap here, the irony of this moment is that a Gentile centurion, not the Jewish religious leaders, recognize the limitless nature of Jesus' authority, demonstrating for us that if, hey, if, if Israel's not going to acknowledge her king, well, then these despised pagans would. And in affirming the centurion's faith, Jesus presents to us a wonderful picture of the all-embracing nature of faith and grace 
People will come from every race, every nation, every ethnicity, every language to join in the feast celebrating the grace of Jesus the Messiah. And of course, the obvious uh, application for us today is simply this. Do we have faith in Jesus like that of the centurion? If that's not your faith today, then I got to ask, what or whom are you placing your faith? Who is your source of hope? And is that a victorious hope? See, for a Christian, living with hope means a whole lot more than, well, I sure hope it rains soon, or man, I hope the Razorbacks win on Saturday. Um, for a Christian, have, having hope, it means knowing that you are trusting in someone that will make things happen, that will keep his promises. <coughs> Excuse me. Does that sound like faith to you? I mean, it should, because faith and hope are really, they're two sides of the same spiritual currency. I mean, it's trusting in God, in what he says, in his power, in his authority, and in his love to make things happen in his timing and according to his plan. In an essay called Knowing Christianity is True, the relationship between faith and reason, Thomas and Richard Howe wrote this. <clears throat> they wrote that faith is not an amorphous wish or hopeful desire for something that one is not certain will be realized. Faith is a firm certainty grounded in the faithfulness of God and a certain expectation of the fulfillment of all of the promises God has made. So, folks, the hope that we have in Jesus, that's a sure hope. It is the expectation that what we believe will come to pass. And it's a sure hope because our faith is in the right person, Jesus, the one whom the writer of Hebrews called the author and perfecter of our faith. So here in Matthew chapter 8, we have evidence that our faith in Jesus Christ is legit because Jesus Christ is legit. And when you read these miracle accounts in the Gospels, you know, they're not just there simply as a historical record of the things that Jesus said and did. These miracles actually point us to a much, much greater reality. The fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God the Son. He truly is Lord over all. He is master. He is boss. Now, how should that truth challenge you and I today? N.T. Wright, who's a British Bible scholar, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, he wrote this. He said, the challenge for today's Christian is to ask, what does it mean to recognize and to submit to the authority of Jesus himself? What does it mean to call him Lord and live by that? There is nothing in the New Testament to suggest that faith is a general awareness of a supernatural dimension or a, a general trust in the goodness of some distant divinity so that some might arrive at this through Jesus and others by some quite different route. Faith 
in Christian terms means believing precisely that the living God has entrusted his authority to Jesus himself, who is now exercising it for the salvation of the world. If the policeman used his authority to break up a student party, Jesus is using his to set in motion a much greater celebration. And he invites us all to share in it. That's a great point, y'all. But how do we share in the celebration that Jesus has put into motion? Well, it depends. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ or not? I mean, if you're already a Christ follower, then there are some ways that we can express our faith in Christ this week. There are some ways that we can, to borrow a phrase from Paul, work out our salvation this week. In fact, four simple things I'm going to give you real quick. Uh, call them action steps, whatever you want to call them. Here's the first one. Review. One way to see God's power and ability to work on our behalf is to see how he has already worked in the scriptures. So look at the accounts of some of those heroes from the Old Testament. Review what God has done in their lives. And in fact, a great place to start would be Hebrews chapter 11 because it's kind of uh, what we would call the, uh, the faith hall of fame or the, the, the chapter dealing with the Hebrew heroes. That's a great place to start. So review, then rewind. Make a list of the major events in your own life where you've seen God at work in recent years and use that as a list to build your faith by praying through the different ways that you have seen him work on your behalf already. So review, rewind. Here's the third one. Trust. Is there an area of your life where you really are having difficulty Trust in the Lord. Make that conscious choice every day to say, God, I trust you. Trust his power. Trust his authority over all things. And once you've trusted, then here's the last thing. Ask. Be willing to ask something huge from God. Ask him to do something with your prayer that is God-sized. Pray for something that can only be explained by the fact that God is at work. Do you know that on Sunday, December the 3rd, 1967, Dr. Christian Barnard of Cape Town, South Africa, and a surgical team of 30 shocked the world by performing the first successful heart transplant? A 50-year-old man received a new heart from a man who had been killed in a car accident. And this long and, and costly medical procedure actually triggered a proliferation of transplant operations in the decades that have followed. And in the process has given hope to countless people in search of a new heart. You know, if you've come to realize that your life is not what you had hoped it would be, you know what? There's hope for a new heart for you. Oh, and guess who the donor is? It's Jesus. You see, he died and rose so that we might be made whole. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new 
has come. You can be made new today by Jesus. If you haven't yet chosen to entrust your heart and life to Jesus, to God the Son, he invites you to share in his celebration. Celebration of what? Of hope. The hope that comes from an abundant life. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that I have come that they might have life, they might have it more abundantly. But not just abundant life here on earth, but eternal life in heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.